Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15 is our text. It's Paul dealing with the subject of men and women in the life of the church. Let me just go ahead and read this text for us. Paul wrote... I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And that connects it to the previous theme of last week's paragraph uh, and the earlier part of the chapter. Verse 9, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, if you've read ahead in what we're dealing with going through 1 Timothy you might have been wondering what in the world is the pastor going to say about that passage of Scripture. To be quite honest with you, for the last four or five weeks, I've been wondering what in the world is the pastor going to say about this passage of Scripture. Uh, Truthfully, uh, more than really any other one sermon in the past several years, I have read on this subject, thought on this subject, prayed over this subject. I've actually had others read the sermon prior to me preaching this sermon because I want to make sure that we get right what the Bible says. There are some folks, for example, who would just take this text, and, and really there are three options when we look at a text like this. One option is just ignoring this text. It's basically making the case that, okay, Paul is a chauvinist and he's from a patriarchal culture and our contemporary culture has passed by the perspective that Paul has. That's one option. The problem with that for us is that we believe the Bible. And if we believe that the Bible is God's Word, and we believe that God is right, doesn't lie, can't get anything wrong, and we believe that we have Scripture coming from the authority of God, then it's really hard for us to just take that approach to a text like this. Because then we're simply picking and choosing the text that we like to hold. And sooner or later, when a culture does that, it moves us simply out of bounds Scripture or out of bounds theologically. If you want to deal with that, come back and if you want to hear a little bit more about that, the authority and inerrancy of Scripture, that's really where we're going to start with our Doctrine and Devotion series next week. There's a second option we can take, and, and it is to for this text to plainly mean what it states and apply it baldly or chauvinistically. Uh, and I'll be honest with you, I know a lot of churches and pastors and preachers who do just that. In fact, the way that they apply this is they essentially say women can't speak at all in the life of the church. They need to be quiet. They need to be seen and not heard. And they really use this as a form, in some ways, of spiritual abuse. I've read uh, some books where some of the perspectives that I may disagree with come because of an approach just like that. In fact, people in this community, maybe people that you would know, have come out of ministry settings where that is the approach. And the problem is the tone. 
the tone of that. It's not the tone that is godly and Christ-like and patient, nor does it take into account uh, really the, the entirety of Scripture. We're going to come back to that in a moment. Let me give a third way we can read this text. We can read this text plainly, which is, I think, a biblical reading. But we need to read it also in light of its historical context, which explains some things that we may find a little troubling, but also read it in light of the larger biblical data. In other words, a text like this is worth us interpreting in light of other passages of Scripture and shining some light on what is it that Paul was trying to say and get us to understand. One of the reasons we have difficulty or challenge, difficulty may not be the right word, challenge with a text like this is because it sounds so strange to 21st century ears. I mean, in contemporary American culture, there's really not a job that a man does that a woman can't do. Uh, we live in a very egalitarian culture. That's not necessarily wrong. I, I'm not, I don't think we need to go back and operate the way things were 2,000 years ago because that culture, the Greco-Roman culture, was very demeaning toward women. The Jewish culture wasn't really that much better toward women. And so I'm not saying we need to go back to that perspective. I, I, I don't think it's a bad thing that women can do Lots of different jobs. What Paul is talking about here is not the intrinsic spiritual equality of women with men. He's made it very clear that in the Bible, men and women are considered equal when it comes to their relationship with God. Galatians 3.28, he says, There's no male or female, Greek or barbarian, rich or poor. We're all in Christ as we're in Christ. We're in Christ equally and gloriously. So this isn't a text about value. This is a text about structure. And while Paul is clear that we're equal in our spiritual and intrinsic value in relationship with God, he's equally clear in plenty of places, and I've preached on them before from a complementarian perspective about men and women in their different roles in marriage, and the picture of that from Ephesians 5, Peter talks about that in 1 Peter 3 as well, and that's part of what Paul is getting at here in this text. What does it look like for men and women to operate within the life of the church? So this sermon is going to be a little different in terms of how I structure it. We're just going to walk through the text. I'm going to try to explain each section uh, as we walk through it. And then we're going to look at five specific takeaways, interpretive takeaways, that I hope will encourage you and help you in your study of Scripture. So let's just look at verse 8. Paul says, I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting up their hands without anger or quarreling. That makes a connection to the previous section. What he's saying is that a church should be governed by prayer. Prayer should be what we do. It should be what we start with and finish with. And yes, there's a cultural admonition here, lifting up holy hands. When we pray, we don't typically lift up our hands. It's not that that's wrong, but in the Bible, there are all sorts of postures for prayer. There's lying on your face. There's raising your hands. There's being on your knees. There's bowing before God. There's standing and looking up. There are all sort of appropriate postures. In this, in this instance, I don't think Paul means that every church everywhere of all time is to pray with their hands lifted up. I think what he's saying is prayer should govern the way the men live in the life of the church. Uh, that, that's the basic claim. We should be a church of prayer. And we should be governed without anger or without quarreling. Let's move to the next verse. Verse 9. Likewise also, that the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair, gold or pearls or costly attire. Likewise also, there's a connection 
I think there, it is appropriate for us when we read this text to acknowledge that the likewise means that women are also to pray and men are also to be modest. There is a connection that Paul makes, and so it's not ob- he's not just making a transition and saying, okay, I've talked to the men, now I need to talk to the women. There's an interconnectedness to this. And this is where we need to understand the context. Paul is writing to a church where he spent more than, uh, more than I think, three years preaching and teaching there in Ephesus. He was run out of the city by idolaters. And so he knew this city deeply. This city was a city that was constrained by idol work, Worship, the, the greatest structure, the largest structure in the ancient world was the temple to Artemis in Ephesus. And that temple was what brought in a lot of funds. The idol makers made money from selling their idols, their idols of Diana. Uh, that's the, the, the other word for Artemis. The Artemis selling the, the idols of Artemis all over the city. And when Paul was there preaching, of course, he was preaching that there's one God, one deity, and his name is Jesus Christ. There's no such thing as an idol that you're to worship. So it created a whole lot of conflict. The Artemis cult was a cult of um, fertility worship. That was the type of deity that she was. And she had some, the, the, some practices in their worship. Was, was Sexuality was a part of the cultic worship practice. And there were all sort of interconnectedness with that. And so it, it appears that what's going on in Ephesus here is that some of those who had come to faith in Jesus, some of those men and women, had come out of the worship of Art, Artemis worship, come out of idolatry, and stepped into the life of the church. And one of the areas where that... Uh, impacted the life of the church is those priestesses or those women that were a part of cultic worship for Artemis had had elevated status in the Greco-Roman society. More so than was typical or normal in the Greco-Roman world where women at times were little better than slaves or property that were owned. And so as they stepped into the church, it appears that some of what was taking place in the church at Ephesus is those women were operating a little more culturally like they used to operate when they were uh, idol worshipers rather than focusing on what God expected of them in the life of the congregation, which is why Paul writes about modesty to begin with. And, and he, uh, he says, "...adorn themselves in respectable apparel, modesty with self-control, not with braided hair, gold, pearls, or costly attire." Uh, one commentator puts it this way, the focus on modesty is prohibiting not only extravagant and ostentatious adornment, but also clothing that is seductive and enticing. We read modesty from a 21st century, impure, 21st century lens that is uh, uh, careful and attentive to impurity and things that would be lustful or seductive in nature because our modern culture sells everything with... Sex. That's the way commercials are, are, are penned. That's the way advertisements are set up. But with Paul here, he's not primarily thinking about modesty with relation to sexuality. That's a part of it, but that's not the major part that he was getting at. If you notice exactly how he explains it, not with costly apparel or pearls or necklaces or gold. Now, this is not an absolute prohibition to jewelry. Paul is not saying that no Christian woman walking into the church should, or every Christian woman walking into the church should avoid all, all forms of adornment, uh, whether that be makeup or whether that be clothing or attire or jewelry. What he's saying is that 
the, the, uh, the issue of modesty is that we shouldn't try to draw attention to ourselves. And the way that was taking place in Ephesus it is like all churches everywhere, churches appear to be class-less. And what I mean by that is, churches attract people because the gospel saves people who are poor and who are wealthy. People who have a lot and people who have a little. And it, apparently what was taking place in Ephesus is some of the very wealthy had come to know Jesus and some of the very poor had come to know Jesus and they were all worshiping God in the same church. And where that made a specific difference is this. In Greco-Roman Ephesian culture, uh, they would have large parties where they would gather. And the goal at those parties was for the women to adorn themselves with the wealthiest outfits possible. They would wear dresses, get this, that sometimes would be a year or two years salary for the common everyday worker. And they would wear their hair up and they would put jewelry and pearls and all sort of things in their hair. They would adorn themselves so that they would stand out. That was a typical Greco-Roman party in Ephesian culture in Paul's day and in this context. So what Paul is saying is to the ladies in the church, the women in the church, he's saying don't come to church dressed like that. Because if you come to church dressed like that, what you're saying is, my wealth is worth being flaunted in this congregation of people. Because you're going to be around people who have next to nothing, and you're going to be walking in showing off all the gaudy, wonderful privileges you have of your financial blessings. Paul's saying that's not the goal of gathering at church. Here's the simple way to put it. What we wear shouldn't draw attention to ourselves. It should cover us up, it should be neat, it should be clean. Other than that, I'm not sure there's really, really others, any specific admonition I'm going to give to any of you about what you dress like or what you wear. It just simply shouldn't be about drawing attention to ourselves. Uh, that's modesty. Because Paul goes on to say, he talks about the specific characteristics that we should have, particularly for women in this context. You should adorn yourselves with self-control with godliness, with good works. Uh, the type of folks that make a difference in the life of the church are not the ones that walk in with all the wealth. The type of folks that make a difference in the life of the church are the ones who are godly, self-controlled, and adorn themselves with good works. So that's what Paul was saying about modesty. Let's move to verse 11. He says, Let a woman, woman learn, with, or learn quietly with all submissiveness, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So what in the world do we do with a text like this? Because this is the wrestle point, right? This is the hinge point of the, the entire passage of Scripture. Well, it, Jewish culture was only slightly better with women than Greco-Roman culture. In many cases, a woman in a Greco-Roman society would not be allowed to be in the same place uh, of a man. They couldn't be in the same place. They couldn't be educated the same way men could. They, they were left to be ignorant in many, in many uh, arenas of that culture. Jewish culture was very similar. It was atypical for a woman to be in the temple learning something, to be valued enough to learn something. And of course, we know that Jesus operated differently in the New Testament. In fact, He commended Mary when she was learning at His feet there in the room while Martha was going about all her business serving the folks that were in the house. I mean, biblical Christianity in one sense is an elevation of women. So we read this with the 21st century ears. 
But I want you to take those ears off for a second and just remember that one of the things that Paul is doing is elevating the status of women in this particular context because he says women can learn. We don't want to exclude women from the life of the church. We want women to be in the life of the church learning. That's a a significant value that is taking place in this particular statement or this particular text. Obviously, there, were some tr- there was some trouble going on in the church at Ephesus, which is why Paul made this specific admonition. I think Corinth has some of the same issues. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and chapter 14, Paul gives some similar statements in those contexts and cultures. I think it's pretty safe to say that some of the false teaching that was going on had been adopted by some of the ladies in the church that had enjoyed their elevation of status, maybe in the Artemis temple and idolatrous worship, and they had become Christians, and they had found themselves in the life of the church. And so now instead of learning and listening and being submissive to the church leadership, they were picking up false teaching and spouting that false teaching and teaching over the men and some things like that, it appears like that's part of what Paul's admonition is against. So let's just walk through the text and and discover what Paul is actually saying. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. He says quiet in another verse, in, in verse 12. And so clearly Paul wants in this context the women to be quiet. Now listen to me just a second, okay? Hear my heart. And and we're going to try to walk through this as carefully as we can. This is a quietness that is reflected in submissiveness to the leadership of the church. I don't believe this is absolute silence. Okay? I don't even think Paul believed it was absolute silence in every circumstance in the life of the church. So if you look in 1 Corinthians... Paul had women that spoke in the life of the church. If you look at Paul's ministry in the book of Acts, he interacted with women over and over again that would have been in the life of the church. If you look at Romans chapter 16, Paul commended women in the church that he had never met. And and so this isn't an absolute prohibition for women to speak in the life of the church. But it is a reflection on the idea of submissiveness. Uh, Paul's clear about this structurally. He's clear about this in a marriage setting where a, a wife is to be submissive to her husband. And he's picking up on this very same thing in the life of the church. Wives are to submit to their husbands in the life of the church. You can see a complimentary text in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 about this. In this context, it's submissive to the elders and the pastors and teachers in the church. That's what the context is. So he goes on to say... I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. What is he saying there? What is his implication? Well, because we begin with a view of the Bible that is God's authoritative word, then our question has to be, what does Paul mean by this? Not we're going to throw this out. Not we're going to ignore this because we don't like it. There are some passages of Scripture I'd like to ignore, but I don't get to do that because we have to submit to the text rather than change the text. So what is Paul trying to say in this specific text? Several options have been posed over the years. One of those options is that Paul had in view only a usurping authority view. In other words, if you read the King James Version of this text, uh, the word authentane, which is... is, um, 
the word authority or to exercise authority, that is translated usurp authority or overrule. And that's one way to look at it, but I, I think Paul's statement is a little more clear than that. Another way of addressing this is basically to say that Paul is wrong and ignore the text. But we're not going to do that because we believe in Scripture. So because Paul is affirming something that God has given him, then we need to take seriously what the text says. So there are two words that, that help us with clarity here. The first one is, I do not permit a woman to teach. That word is didaskein, which is authoritative teaching in the life of the church, essentially the preaching time in the life of the church. We call it preaching. Paul, in this context, would have, would have said that it's teaching similar words, words that are used interchangeably at different times in the New Testament. So teaching, and here's the, here's the kicker here, that word, didaskein, is always used in a positive sense. So some scholars and some, uh, some commentators have tried to then take the word exercise authority and only use it in the negative sense, as if what Paul was saying is this, I don't permit a woman to teach if she's going to try to usurp the authority of the elders. She can teach, she just can't teach in that category. The problem with that interpretation, I really wrestled with this, is that you never have two verbs, one used positively and one used negatively, in the same frame, in the same context. And so to exercise authority is the proper translation of that particular word. So what is it that Paul is actually trying to say here? I think Paul is saying, in this context, in this ministry, in Ephesus, and for the church in general, that women are not supposed to be the primary teachers in the life of the church. And that's really not any different than what we practice in our church. We'll get to some takeaways in a moment. But I think that's exactly what Paul's saying. I think that's clearly what's in Paul's mind. And why do we take it that way? Why don't we just take it as, okay, this is a cultural phenomenon for Ephesus? Well, look at verse 13. For Adam was formed first and then Eve... And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So Paul doesn't ground his argument in the cultural phenomenon that happened at Ephesus. He could have, and we might have said, okay, this is unique to this setting. It's not universal for the life of the church. But he didn't. He went all the way back to Adam and Eve. He grounded it in creation. Meaning that there's an emphasis here where Adam was formed, then Eve, so there's a structural uh, relationship in the first relationship. And, and I think what he's getting at, what Paul's getting at in this particular text, is how Eve usurped that structural authority. So Eve was tempted. Eve was the one that was tempted. She was deceived and she gave to Adam leading Adam into sin. Adam sinned too. And if you're troubled by that as a female, that Eve was deceived and Adam sinned, look at Romans chapter 5 because Paul doesn't say that uh, it was Eve's sin that led the entire human race into sin. Paul said it was Adam's sin that led the entire human race into sin. This is not about intrinsic spiritual quality, spiritual equality. It's simply an argument that Paul's making, hey, here's the reason why women are not permitted to be the primary teachers in the church. Now, we may have trouble with that. We may not like that. But if you don't like that, don't get mad at me. I'm just simply the messenger. All I'm trying to do is say what God says and what God has instructed. I, I, there are some things I'm going to ask God about when I get to heaven too. And this might be one of them. God, why would you structure things this way? But He did. Now, let's look at another uh, verse 15 and then we're going to look at some takeaways. Verse 15, it says, Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness 
with self-control. Now that's a strange text too. What, what in the world is Paul talking about saved through childbirth? Uh, some have read that, read into that, that essentially what that means is that the proper means for a woman to expect, express her femininity is through giving birth to children. And that salvation comes through that process. Well, there are a whole host of problems with that, theologically and practically. If Paul meant to say that, then essentially he's adding works to salvation, meaning that childbearing and childbirth uh, affirms salvation in a way that's not faith and not trust in Jesus. It also leaves out a whole host of women who are unmarried or who don't have children or who can't have children. So I don't think that's what Paul's saying at all. I think there are two implications that Paul makes here that helps us understand what he means by verse 15. One of these is practical and the other is theological. And I think both of them are at least partially true, if not absolutely true. The first practical one is this, saved through childbearing, uh, Artemis was a fertility goddess. One of her primary responsibilities in that particular cult of worship was to protect women in childbirth. The women believed that if they served Artemis in a certain way, they would give birth to their babies and their babies would be healthy and they would be healthy. Now, we live in a day and age where it is abnormal for a woman to lose a child. But in the ancient world and in third world countries, it is not abnormal for a woman to die in childbirth or for children to die in childbirth. We have the blessing of the advance of technology. And so in that particular cult, taking care of children was Artemis' responsibility. I think practically what Paul is getting at is to the Christian women in the church at Ephesus is saying, hey, listen, don't trust her for your rescue and for your salvation. Trust in the Lord. The Lord is the one that's going to take care of you through childbirth. The Lord is the one who's going to take care of you, take care of your baby through childbirth. So I think that's part of Paul's implication. I think a second aspect, and this is a little harder case to make, but it fits the context, is the theological connection. I think Paul could have been referring all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. If you think of the context where he has connected his, uh, his, his specific admonition to this church, to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, what curse did he lay at the feet of the snake? He said, you will be crushed by the head of the seed of the woman. And the, the seed of the woman, his heel will be bruised by the bite of a serpent. It's what we call the proto-evangelium. It's the first gospel. It's the first affirmation that God is going to rescue His people through a statement or a declaration of salvation. And I think part of what Paul's getting at is saved through childbearing could be saved through the childbirth, meaning the Messiah, the one who came to rescue and the one who came to redeem. By the way, he was not born of a man. Man had nothing to do with the birth of Jesus. God and Mary are the only ones that had anything to do with the birth of Jesus, and salvation comes through that process. I think it's, it, it's in part what Paul is saying. He's reminding us that even though there's an admonition here that is clear and that may be hard for us to grasp and understand, there's still a glorious redemptive element to it where Paul has in mind, hey, listen, here's what I want you to know. Salvation comes through a woman who bore a child who will redeem all people. And there's a redemptive note to this particular text. In any case, with all of these verses, let me tell you what we're likely to do. A lot of times we read a passage like this and we look for the prohibitions. We look for the things that we struggle with and we kind of focus on those things. And it's appropriate that we try to get an answer for what those texts says. I'm going to walk through that in a moment. But I want you to catch something. In verse 8, Paul talks about 
The church being holy, being without quarreling, without anger in verse 15, faith, love, and holiness with self-control are to be qualities of the women operating in the life of the church. Self-control is all throughout the text. Here's what I want you to get. Wherever you land on this interpretation, and maybe you disagree with me, that's okay. Wherever you land and wherever we land as a church, let me tell you something that should govern how we behave. We shouldn't be angry about it. We shouldn't quarrel about it. We shouldn't fight about it. We shouldn't fret about it. We shouldn't lose our control about it because I'm going to tell you something. In the life of churches all over the United States, differences of theological opinion and or differences of opinion that have nothing to do with theology have caused anger, have caused quarreling, have caused division, and all of that is a distraction for the gospel. Remember, what Paul is getting at in Timothy in this letter is making sure the church doesn't distract from the teaching and preaching of the gospel. Evidently, there were some practices that were going on in the church that were doing that. And this admonition is designed to help the church get back on the right footing, not be distracted from its mission of preaching and teaching the gospel. Let me tell you what will distract a church quicker than anything else. You having to get your way or me having to get mine. You wanting to be in charge or me wanting to be in charge. You having to get your way, you not liking something I say, or me not liking something you say, and us holding on to that, being angry about it, being frustrated about it. Don't lose sight of the the theological admonitions of this text and miss the practical implications that our character is to be such that even if we differ in some areas, even if we disagree in some areas, listen, we're going to do so lovingly and with self-control and with a commitment not to fight about things that aren't tremendously important. Although some are very important. Now, let me walk, let's finish with five interpretive takeaways. Some things that will help us not only with this text, but with other passages of Scripture. Here's the first one. Interpret a text within its context. One of the problems with a bald interpretation or a plain interpretation of this text and how it's been used to spiritually abuse women in the life of the church. And I, 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 if you want to read a book on that, read um, Beth Barr's book, um, The Making of Biblical Womanhood. It's not on the resource list there. I don't agree with her conclusions where she lands uh, so much on women in ministry, but she tells a story about how texts like this have been used to abuse women and essentially limit women, control women in the life of the church. And that's wrong. I'm just telling you. It's not the way that we ought to behave, and I'll make a case for that in a moment. So the context of Ephesus helps us understand and shed a little bit more light on exactly what Paul was doing. So we have to interpret a text in its context. If you come across a passage of Scripture and you're unsure about it, well then let's try to figure out what's going on. What's the historical context? What's the context related to its text or related to its occasion? What's going on? That'll help us get clarity. Let me give you a second takeaway. Away. When we face a controversial or difficult text, let Scripture interpret Scripture. Meaning, yes, this is plain, but let's look at it in the context of all of Scripture. So if Paul meant for every woman everywhere to be quiet in every church context, then that's a really big problem with the rest of Scripture. Because if you go back and look at the Scripture, look at the Old Testament, you have godly women speaking up all the time in all sort of settings. 
You have Sarah speaking to Abraham. And you have Huldah who is called a prophetess. And you have Deborah who's called a judge. And you have uh, the Proverbs 31 woman who is wise in her home and wise in her business. Uh, you could, we could go on. You have Ruth who spoke up in a very bold way toward Boaz in the book of Ruth. You have Naomi trying to protect and rescue her family. In the New Testament, you have Mary and Martha. Martha who served Jesus. Mary who sat at Jesus' feet. You have the very first witnesses of the resurrection are not men. The very first evangelists in the entirety of Scripture are women who were there at the resurrection and saw the risen Jesus. If you go to um, uh, Philip's daughters in the book of Acts, are called prophetesses. Whatever you do with preaching, women preaching, women communicating, women teaching, maybe not in the life of the church in the preaching or teaching role, but you've got to do something with Philip's daughters. Four prophetesses who at some level spoke and communicated publicly. You've got to do something with Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila taught um, Barnabas, helped him communicate, helped him understand the true teaching of the gospel. You've got to do something with those. You've got to do something with Romans 16.1 where Phoebe is called a deaconess or a servant in the life of the church. And then you look at Romans chapter 16 and Paul, a third of the names that Paul lists there are women who had supported the ministry of the church in Rome. My point is this, if we just read this as an isolated text and say this means women can't do this, 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 and this, we miss the larger purpose that's the entirety of Scripture where women have a valid and valuable and glorious role in the life of the church. I'm going to come back to that point in a moment, so don't lose me there. Let me give you a third takeaway. Since the Bible is God's Word, the teaching of Scripture is authoritative. This is where we're going to begin next week with our uh, theology series Faithful Christians with a high view of Scripture might have areas of disagreement, but what we can't do is say that there's an error with Scripture. I might be wrong in my interpretation, and you might be wrong in yours. We might be wrong in how we understand some things, but the error is with us. God's Word is authoritative, and if we're going to have a high view of Scripture, then we can't look at a text and say the author was wrong. We've got to hold that God knew what He was talking about, that God is authoritative and true, He can't lie, and so we've got to take scriptural teaching as authoritative. That's why it's really important. That's why I studied a lot for this sermon. That's why I study a lot for all sermons. Because when I stand before you and say, this is what God says about a text, there's an authority that comes with that, but not because it comes from me, because it comes from God's Word. And I should be right, or as right as I possibly can, about what I say. Let me give you a fourth takeaway. For us as a congregation, as a local church, we have an obligation to apply interpretations to church ministry and polity. In other words, how we understand this text should be applied in our ministry settings. For us here, we don't believe that a woman should be preaching in the life of the church. And so typically we don't have a woman in the pulpit preaching. That's just not practiced. We believe this text is clear enough to say that. But we also don't believe that women should always be silent in every time that a church or church members are together in every setting. Our church historically has had women Sunday school teachers, and we have women Sunday school teachers now that teach in mixed settings. And I don't think that breaks the text. I don't think that's in discord with Paul's admonition. I think Paul specifically is talking about the teaching and preaching role in the life of the church. Now, now maybe some of you disagree with that. You're not sure that it, it even allows that. Well, we have Sunday school classes that are taught by only men. But I, 
I don't think that that's the I don't think that's what Paul was getting at. In every setting a woman has to be absolutely silent. I think the picture is a woman in the church just like a man in the church should be submissive to the authority in the church and the authority in the church is scripture. And the authority in the church is spoken by the pastors or elders of the church. And so we have a responsibility to say what Scripture says. But all of us should be submissive to that, woman or man. Does that make sense? So another thing that that means is if you look just around us at a church up the street and a church across the street, both of those churches have women in the role of pastor or priest. It's not our job, my job at Wilkesboro Baptist Church to fix what I think may be a theological error at another church. I'm not going to get in a fight with them about it. I, I, don't, I don't think they're going to get in a fight with me about it. Uh, I, I, I may think they're wrong, but I'm pretty sure they think we're wrong about some things too. And you know what? It just doesn't do us a lot of help to get in arguments with other churches and other denominations and other situations. We need, we've got plenty to worry about here. So our job is to practice that in a way that's healthy in our congregation. So take interpretations and set them up in terms of our polity and our practice and our ministry here at Wilkesboro Baptist Church. Let me give you a fifth affirmation. This one's really important. We can and should affirm the ministry role of women in the life of the church. Absolutely. Without question. Even in light of this text. Listen, we have one of the godliest, brightest women serving on our church staff at, at Wilkesboro Baptist Church. Danielle Hicks. She leads our children and families. I'm grateful for her being here. I'm grateful for her insight into the lives of children and families in our church. Listen, the children that we're baptizing who have come to faith in Jesus, it's because Danielle makes sure that the gospel is taught in those settings and have regular conversations with those children. I am deeply grateful for her. And by the way, just because... At our church, we might not have a woman in the preaching and teaching an elder role in the life of the church. That doesn't mean we can't learn from women. Can I get an amen? Listen, there are some things that I have learned from my wife, and I thank God for what my wife has taught me. There are some things that I have learned from Danielle and from other ladies in our church, and I thank God for that. But you know what? They've not preached at me. Now, my mama preached at me a little bit when I was growing up. And she was probably the best preacher in our house to be quite frank with you, but she never preached from a pulpit in a church setting. My point is this. We can learn a lot from women. And if you look, I didn't even start to give a list of the women who teach and the women who serve in the life of our church because I'd, I, would, I would leave four or five names out and somebody would have their feelings hurt. And I don't want to do that. I want to acknowledge that God has blessed women in the ministry of the church. And that's Paul's emph- emphasis here is on helping us understand what happens in the worship service. Not what happens in every setting, everywhere, in every context. Let me give you an example to close that up. Lottie Moon. We're Baptists for a reason, right? We're Southern Baptists. We cooperate. And every Christmas, we take up the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. And it's because Lottie Moon in the late 1800s gave her life to missions. She went as a single woman to China to spread the good news of Jesus Christ among the Chinese. Before it was... Normal. She adopted the customs and the culture of the Chinese that she operated around, that she ministered to. She dressed like them. She looked like them. She ate like them. She loved them. She cared about them. She served them. She ministered to them. She wanted them to know the gospel. For 40 years, folks, she gave her life 
in China to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. I say preach loosely. She would have been very uncomfortable with that terminology. In fact, there was a particular setting. She wrote a letter back to the Foreign Mission Board at the time. Now it's the International Mission Board. She wrote a letter back and she said, Hey, I was teaching some girls in the church, girls in the, in the, in the uh, organization, the, the kind of uh, uh, orphanage that she had. She was teaching them, ministering them. And two of the Chinese men came to me and said, We need somebody to teach us. Will you teach us? And she looked at him and said, well, it's not typical for us and in, in our in our belief for me to teach you because I, I'm I'm a female and, and they didn't understand that because they weren't couched in, in you know evangelical theology like she was and she went to them and led a devotion and she led a devotion with much fear and trepidation because she wasn't sure that that's what she was supposed to be doing and guess what she wrote back to the foreign mission board basically she wrote back where are the men. She said, where are the men that are going to come over here and teach the men? Listen, if, if Lottie Moon preached a sermon or taught a man, <laughs> I, she'll let, God and her will have to work that out in heaven. We're not to be the judge of all of those settings, all of those circumstances. Our responsibility is in the life of the church. My point is this. Folks, there are people that God has used to tremendously bless our church and other churches, and they're not always men. Now, we want to take Scripture seriously. We want to, we want to read it closely. We want to make sure we're applying it as best we can. We also want to acknowledge what God does and what God does through the lives of men and women all across our world. We're going to close the service this way. Will you take a moment at this invitation time and thank God for whoever shared the gospel with you? Maybe it was a pastor. Maybe it was a Sunday school teacher. My guess is for almost every single one of us, it was somebody that was a female. It may not have been the one that, that led us to faith in Jesus. I'm telling you, my mama taught me the gospel. And I had a grandmother that prayed the gospel over us. And you did too. And if you had a Sunday school teacher that was a godly lady who taught you about Jesus... Here's what I want you to do. I just want, to th- want you to thank God for that. And I want you to thank God for His Word. Can we do that as we close our worship service out? We're going to sing an invitation to Him, but you respond in a moment of prayer, thanking God for those He's put in your life. Stand with me, if you will. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge the authority of Your Scripture. We thank You for what Paul taught us, even when it challenges us. We pray, Heavenly Father, that You would help us to be faithful in our application of Scripture. And Lord, I do thank You for all those women that have meant so much in the life of our church and our community and our denomination. I'm thankful for my mama who taught me Jesus and who prayed for me and who I know communicated the gospel so well in my life. Lord, I'm thankful for Lottie Moon and for the sacrifices she gave to make sure that people all over the world heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, even today, a hundred years later, she's still celebrated for her influence. And Lord, she's a woman in ministry. Thank You for that. Thank you for all those that impacted us and made a difference in our lives. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would bless this church as we seek to apply your scripture clearly, but also as we seek to acknowledge those you're using in our community and across the world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found. 